This is the Education Gadfly Show. Right? We're all nodding our heads, but we're doing a podcast, people. Our audience can see us. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We're the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Eric Parsons. Eric, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, Eric is the Associate Teaching Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri and co-author of Fordham's new report called Bridging the COVID Divide, How States Can Measure Student Achievement Growth in the Absence of 2020 Test Scores. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Well, guys, great to have you on the show. I I understand from our chat before the the show here that both of you are big soccer fans. Eric even even as a son with great soccer talent. Let me tell you something, soccer talent, not something that runs in the Petrilli household. (laughs) Just FYI. (laughs) Despite uh, the fact that I I did play soccer growing up, but uh, looking back on it, it, I actually hated it. I mean, I spent every game just praying that nobody would kick the ball anywhere near (laughs) me. Well, Mike, you have the height for it. (laughs) Yeah, you would think so. There you go. Well, hey, Eric, I'm super excited to have you on the show and really excited to have your new study out that you did with three of your colleagues at Mizzou looking at this question about whether we can still do student level growth measures even without the test scores from last year. We're going to talk about that on this week's Ed Reform Update. You know, Eric, when we started this project, really it was focused on this question of whether, okay, we missed a year of testing. Does that mean that it's going to be impossible to measure student level growth when we get back to testing in the spring of 2021? Little did we know that the pandemic was going to continue to rage, that we were going to continue to see so many kids out of school, and that testing in 2021 would itself be up in the air. And so you and your colleagues were also able to look at the question of whether it would be feasible with two years of test scores missing. So tell us what you did, how you went about to try to answer this question, and what you found. So basically, we went back to the the pre-COVID era where we have, you know, full complement of data from every year. We started out taking kind of the three pre-COVID years, 2017, 2018, 2019, um, and we use that full data to estimate growth models under kind of our business as usual conditions where we have data from every year. And then we artificially removed that middle year, that 2018 data. So kind of to replicate um, that fact that we had no testing in 2020. What if we didn't have testing in 2018 and just estimated the models from 2017 to 2019, what we call our gap year model. So we had growth estimates using full data, growth estimates where we pull out that middle year. And then we, we did that at the school and the district level. And we then correlated the growth estimates from our gap year models that are missing that middle year of data. So basically it's two years of growth without that middle in between versus kind of our aggregated data where we have two single year growth measures that we aggregate together. And what we found was in general, the correlations are, are quite high when you compare the gap year model to the full business as usual model. Our our correlations, we ran a variety of different specifications, both in terms of the structure of the model and the variables included. And we found the correlations at the district level tend to be about 0.9, a little bit lower at the school level. And then if you make some adjustments, those correlations can actually actually increase up into, you know, around 0.95 even at the district level. Yeah, so this is really good news uh, because it does mean that if we want to know, for example, 
Which schools were able to keep kids learning despite this incredible challenge? We should be able to do so if states test again in in 2021, even though we're missing those data. Uh, but, But then you make the important point that that is not so feasible if we don't test again. And that's just a matter of basic logic, right? That to evaluate schools, let's say elementary schools, for example, you'd want to have test scores from third graders through fifth graders. But the third graders from 2019, the last time we have test scores, are going to be sixth graders in 2022 and therefore in middle school. And so we will have missed our chance to find out the impact of, of their elementary schools on their achievement. Is that is that all fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. If we have a, a two-year gap at the school level, it's, it's very difficult. Um, we looked at the Common Core of Data to kind of get a sense for this. And we found that if you have a two-year gap, basically you need four grades, tested grades in the same school to, to estimate growth. So, you know, like if, mm-hmm. a, if they were a third grader, pre-COVID and we they were fourth and fifth grader during that gap period, they'd be a sixth mm-hmm. grader when we get tests again. It turns out only about 30% of schools mm-hmm. cover a grades, a tested grade span big enough to do that. And it's mm-hmm. an even smaller percentage of students, only 27%, because those schools with big grade spans tend to be in rural areas, so they tend to be smaller. Yeah. Um, and right. so at the school level, you just don't have enough students that would be in the same school before and after to do that. At the district level, um, there might be, be some ability to do that. And I think you also, um, in, the, in the, the lead into that question, I think it brings up a, another interesting and useful thing to think about is like, what's the use for this? And, you, and so you mentioned like what schools did well with this. I actually think like perhaps the most important use for growth specifically and testing more broadly is to look at which schools and districts struggled, right? You know, obviously there's been a huge varying response to the pandemic, both geographically and just based on various district policies and urban versus rural and so on. You know, I think that the benefit of having testing data and, and growth data is to look for the places that maybe need some reinforcements, need some extra support, mm-hmm. um, find ways to help them catch back up. And then as we move forward, if we have kind of, if we get the these regi- regimes back in place, we can kind of continually look and see, is this support helping? Are they catching up? At what point do we get back to kind of um, a, a pre-COVID type situation? And none of that can be done if we don't right. have ways of assessing. So Right. And look, none of us are saying that there should be any kind of high stakes accountability attached to the 2021 test scores, right? We, we would not try to punish schools for having their kids fall behind, knowing that for so many schools, so many of the factors are out of their control. But as you say, it's important to know. David, what, what do you think when you think about this? this yeah, I, I'm worried that we're going to lose people on these distinctions, despite the fact that I think the two of you have done a good job of making the points. I mean, I think it's just worth reiterating that the goal here, right, is not necessarily to hold schools accountable. It's to understand how students are doing. And that does not require that we somehow control for COVID, right? Obviously, COVID is going to hit some places harder than others. Um, and that's part of what we're trying to find out here is which right. kids have really been affected. So I'm not sure. I just think it's important to emphasize, right? Nobody's really claiming that we can separate COVID from mm-hmm. uh, the performance of schools here. What we're trying to find out, or, or what I think, the, if I'm understanding correctly, the, the goal here is just simply to understand which schools and which districts, through some combination of COVID and potentially their own contributions, which which are, are going to be sort of different from what you would expect in any other year, have struggled to serve kids well. 
And so, I mean, I just, I think we just can't say that often enough. We want to know how the kids are doing and we need to know because it, it I don't know, the stakes are incredibly high. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is that we still have places where it does not look like we're going to have kids in classrooms this spring, or, or at least uh, there are big city districts where that's the case, my own kids district uh, where that's the case, plenty around the country. And so whether it's feasible to test kids in the spring is, is still up in the air. Uh, you know, some states, have, some assessment companies have been trying to think through whether they can do any of it remotely, but that raises a whole bunch of questions. You know, I have floated the idea of can, can we allow states to move these tests to the fall where hopefully more kids, maybe most kids will be back in. That raises additional methodological uh, and logistical concerns. But I think it's important for people to know that if, if we miss testing in 2021, it's going to come with some real costs. Policymakers, including the new education secretary, is going to really need to think about that. No, I completely agree. And you know, lot, lots of great points that, that both of you brought up. I'm kind of going back to, to David's comments. I yeah, definitely want to Firmly say, I definitely don't think these should be used for accountability purposes. This is very much a, a question of getting information and once again, focusing on how can we provide support to the places that need it the most. And so if you can't, you have to find out what places need it the most to be able to do that to direct those scarce resources. So I think that's, that's a really important um, aspect. Another important issue that David brought up is, so our, our study, obviously like this, we went to a pre-COVID period and pulled out that middle year. So obviously what we're, we are looking at like there are no effects of COVID because it was before COVID happened. So I think like the value of what we find is that if you just pull out a year of data and there's nothing else going on, we see very similar um, estimates with, with or without that year of data. So what that means is now that if we go to the, the post-COVID period and we see big changes in like district rankings and district school performance and stuff like that, that means that in the post period, we can attribute that to mm -hmm. changes induced by COVID because we know that if just we know that pulling out one year of data from a modeling perspective is not going to cause a big shuffling in how we measure school and district yeah. performance. So any big changes that we see, mm -hmm. then we can feel that those are COVID induced, pandemic induced, because right. we know that that's it's not a, mo a strictly modeling statistical issue. And I think that's really like the, the, the big value that we see. Great. All right. Now, let me ask you one last question, Eric. And you, David, I can't help myself. This is a uh, one of my harebrained ideas that, uh, that, yeah. that I think nobody at Fordham and I don't think anybody on, on Eric's team uh, likes either. But you get this finding that huh? if you skip a year of testing, the results are almost as accurate as if you test every year. And we still have a big testing backlash out there. There's a whole lot of people who would like to find ways to lessen the testing burden on schools. So it raises the question of, you know, do we really need to be testing kids every year as is required under ESSA? Could we find a way to skip some years maybe? And uh, especially if local districts are still testing kids every year using their own assessments, giving those data to teachers and to parents. If the state tests are just for accountability purposes, for the most part, why couldn't we, for example, skip testing in fourth grade if you've got tests when kids are in third grade and fifth grade and use those to evaluate elementary schools? What, what, what do you guys think about this? Is that nuts? I, I can go first. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I don't think it's nuts. I need to think about it some more. And I suspect that there are aspects of it that we, you, have not fully thought through here. 
I can't necessarily nail down all of what those are, but the first one that comes to mind, and this is not to necessarily rule out the, rule out the idea, is that you know some of the populations that we care about a lot are highly mobile. And so even with one you know year-to-year testing, right, you have kids who move in and out uh, of a school who are not necessarily reflected in the growth score. And so if you add a whole nother year, you are increasing the number of kids who are not reflected in a school's growth score. And at some level, you're giving the school an incentive insofar as growth is, is sort of the basis for school grades and other accountability. You're, you're giving, you may be giving schools an incentive to ignore those kids. Again, I, I'm not necessarily ruling it out because it is such a huge issue. The upside of sort of defusing the anti-testing movement and, and getting to some place that every, everyone can live with should not be underestimated politically or practically or, or whatever. But I do think it's it's a really, it's a big change. Um, and so I don't think we can just say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing. All right. So I agree with David. I don't think it's a completely crazy idea. And I, I agree there are, you know, political um, benefits to kind of making that argument. I guess some other some things to think about, though, along the along that dimension. One is we would lose some schools um, that we wouldn't be able to evaluate growth for. You know, for example, if a school ends at fourth grade, you know, and we just test in third and fifth, right? We get to that problem once again if we're we're, we're losing losing those those aspects. And so, I guess kind of the question that we were looking at with this report is obviously we can't calculate standard year-to-year growth because we missed that test year, right? And so right now, the, the, the kind of the alternatives are, do we do two-year, do we measure growth using a, a gap year, right? Or nothing, right? And our, and our results mm-hmm. definitely suggest that we get something of value, even if we have that gap year. Once we, things get back to normal, that's not really the relevant alternative anymore. The relevant mm-hmm. alternative is what's better having it every other year or however the testing structure was set up versus having the data every year. And in that case, the having data every year is certainly better. Is it a lot better? You know, our results suggest it's some better, but maybe not a huge difference. So I think, you know, there's those discussions can be had, but you, there are definitely trade-offs. We definitely lose some schools. I think, you know, one issue that is often talked about is that since testing starts in third grade, well, we know that there are gaps when students enter school. So like even just with the third through eighth testing regime, we lose how much of the gap in third grade is due to entrance characteristics versus um, schooling um, and district performance as well, right? So making it even sparser, increase, you know, testing even sparser increases the concern about those questions. In general, I would say I probably wouldn't make the argument that we should go in that direction, but I, I agree with David. I don't think it's a completely crazy idea you know, that has some, I'm an economist, right? Everything's about trade-offs, right? So if we, you know, if, if we, there, there are trade-offs both ways, uh, my preference would probably be to go back to, to our annual testing, which I think has some other benefits too. But, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a normative question at that point. Yes, on the one hand and on the other hand, and uh, that's why people yes. want one-handed <laughs> economists. All right, hey, Eric Parsons, again, from the University of Missouri. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And again, great job to you and your colleagues with the study. We really appreciate it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, you know, I got a notice from Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, where my my boys go, that uh, they will not be reopening schools until March 15th at the earliest. This will mean at least an entire year of Zoom school. Oh, my. How, How are they and you holding up? 
Look, I, we are very fortunate. I have to say it's actually kind of pretty sweet that I'm getting all this time with them when they still just barely still are okay hanging out with me. And I've been enjoying being table mates with my 11-year-old Leandro. So that's been okay. But uh, but boy, you know, Montgomery County, it's known as an affluent school district. 150,000 kids. There's a lot of poor kids, you know, something like 50,000 poor kids. Imagine not a day in class in a classroom for a whole year. Thankfully, at this point, I think that's making Montgomery County an outlier, and there are a few others nationally, but not that many. And uh, I don't know, Amber, this is what happens when you have a county that's really run by the unions. Uh, you escaped Montgomery County not so long ago. I did. You know, when they happy. when they added the bag tax, when I had to pay a nickel for a bag when I went to the grocery store, I was done. Yeah. I'm like, got to get out of this county. <laughs> I'm not paying for my plastic bags rain tax got me too. When it was raining, I'm like, oh, great. There go my taxes. So anyhow, I digress. Yeah. All right. So what you got for us on the research front today? Got a new study examines how student mobility might impact the achievement of students in full-time virtual schools. I like this one. It caught my eye because I think all of us know the literature that just shows consistently large negative impacts for kids in full-time virtual charter schools. But a lot of them are, are mostly quasi-experimental studies. They've often not controlled for student mobility, which is, seems like a big deal that could be negatively biasing the estimates even more. So, granted, this is a kind of a wonky study, but I thought it was a useful exercise. It's by Pat Wolf and his colleagues who are big into charter school research. So let's dig in just a little bit. It's a simple finding, uh, but an important one. By mobility, the paper means a measure that counts the number of transfers that occur during a school year. So transferring to another school, but not due to grade promotion, that sort of thing. They study students in a large, unnamed, fully accredited virtual charter school, wherein any K-12 student within the state is eligible to attend. Whether it is Florida virtual school is anyone's guess. I'm not 100% sure. They examined grade three through eight student level achievement and demographic data from 2014-15 through 2017-18, wherein the treatment is defined as being enrolled in the virtual school at any time during the outcome year, and the comparison is not. And then they go into a lot of detail on their matching, you know, how they match the kids. But they basically use a one-to-one nearest neighbor matching propensity score procedure. Basically, that means that they match students to their peers in the same grade, in the same year, on their prior achievement, on race, free and reduced lunch status, ESL status, and SPED status, and on the number of mid-year switches for each student. So that's a lot of matching variables. And then even more specifically, those virtual students are matched with their non-virtual peers who scored within a five percentage point band on the prior year's assessment in the subject of interest. Okay, so lots of variables to match on and they do as best as they can on that exercise. Key finding, without controlling for these mid-year transfers, virtual kids perform about 4% of a standard deviation worse in ELA and 21% of standard deviation worse in math compared to these matched peers. But when they match on these mid-year school transfers as well, so they include that as a control, they find that the estimates are slightly less negative, around four percentage points less negative in ELA, three percentage points less negative in math. Thus, failing to account for this type of mobility modestly impacts the estimates, but it's likely smaller magnitude than probably many would have guessed or imagined. So they end up saying, you know, 
still, it's ridiculously hard to find the right comparison group for virtual students that attempts to account for these unobservable differences that we know make them different. This is a tall order because it's really hard to figure out, you know, why kids choose full-time virtual schools. But all that said, trying to control for this type of mobility seems to be uh, an improvement and um, something that researchers should consider in the future when they're looking at these types of schools. So I think my question is whether it's actually an improvement, right? So it seems to me that, and, and I'm way out of my depth here, this is not my area of specialty, but it seems to me that moving to a remote setting could actually increase mobility significantly because it's much easier to change schools online than it is to physically choose another school and drive five or 10 or 15 miles. When we're matching on mobility, isn't mobility part of the effect at some level? Did they talk about that at all? Do we know whether mobility rates are higher for kids in general in online settings? It's an interesting point, David. But here's the debate. I mean, when you talk to people in the virtual schools world, again, all pre-pandemic, they would often point out that the reason that the student achievement results are so bad is, number one, they end up serving some kids who are low achieving or have a lot of issues to begin with. And then you know, they don't have them for very long. They come in and out of these schools. And I'm thinking especially of some of the virtual charter schools, that some families use these schools as a stopgap if they're in crisis, if the kid's unhealthy, if they're moving around. And so, of course, they're not making great gains in terms of student achievement. Whereas if you could, you know, keep these kids for long enough, maybe you'd see something better. I think what we're seeing here from this study is that that is true to a degree But even if you try to control for mobility best we can, you still see some of these negative results, especially in math, you know, and and I think it's demonstrating that (laughs) there may really be something about the modality itself uh, that is just not very effective, at least for most kids. Yeah, I agree, Mike. And I didn't mean to call that into question, right? I think I feel like, if anything, the authors are being too generous, right? Because it seems to me that the same, essentially the same kid, right, if you put them in an online setting, could be more mobile, right? So if you match on that, then you wind up essentially making the mobile kids look better than they should, because you've got a kid who uh, would otherwise be less mobile getting matched with a kid who's more mobile. But yeah, right, to your point, that that suggests that if anything, that controlling for mobility makes things look better than it should for the online schools. And as you say, even when they do control for it, they still look pretty bad, it seems like. I think the expectation is that virtual schools should be doing better with mobile kids, right? Like that somehow they should be able to smooth that transition because these are the kids that are often enrolling in these schools. So there's that point too. Do we expect them to be able to uh, somehow handle the mobile child better better than another school, given that that's the population that that sometimes uh, is attracted to virtual schools? And look, there's a policy solution here. And in fact, our colleagues in Ohio just recently helped get some legislation passed that will allow for this in the Buckeye State, which is to give virtual charter schools the ability to, in effect, hold parents and families accountable if, if their kids are, are signing up for these schools and they're not tuning in, which is a case that, that you see in some, you know, a lot of cases. They're just coming in and out of the schools, but they're also sometimes not logging in. They're just not participating. They're not really attending school. And so uh, now it's made it somewhat easier for these schools to disenroll those kinds of kids. But I think what we want, I think we all agree that some kind of remote learning has great potential. And we see that after the, after the pandemic, we also see that it is not a good fit for lots of kids and families. So it'd be good to be able to get to the point where it's available 
support families who need it and who are willing to make it, you know, are, are well positioned to make it work and demonstrate that they're willing to do what it takes to make it work. But it can't be something where, you know, if it's not working, if the kids aren't attending, there are these things still, truancy laws and the like. We got to say, hey, this is clearly not for you and you've got to enroll your kid in a traditional mm-hmm. school, right? We're all nodding our heads, but we're doing a podcast, people. Our audience can't see us. That sounds yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I, I agree with that. And I also agree that, you know, kids transfer for different reasons. You know, transferring because, you know, you had this terrible domestic violence, something happened at home or versus you've been bullied versus, you know, you're sickly. I mean, there. I think there are also extenuating circumstances that we have to look into as to why kids enroll in virtual setting and, and how long they, can, they have to be there. Because in some cases, it's a temporary solution. So, yeah, it, it's complicated. All right. Another great study by Pat Wolf, which, by the way, Amber, I feel like uh, Pat Wolf is starting to creep up on Dan Goldhaber as uh, as your favorite researcher. So, uh, Dan, send us your stuff. It's a tight race. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amber. Great, great stuff. That is all the time, though, that we've got for this week. So, until next week. I'm David. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.